Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's show, on the heels of a recent report that is being used by the media to challenge the criticisms of the tar sands in Alberta, we'll be speaking with Keith Stewart of Greenpeace about some of the things that we need to know before we conclude what the media is concluding about the tar sands. Also, we'll be speaking with three political observers about the NDP leadership race and who the main contenders are and what direction they're likely to take the party. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of March 22nd, 2012. Public library workers in Toronto walked off the job late Sunday after negotiations over their expired collective agreement stalled. 2,300 employees at over 90 libraries took job action after the union rejected the latest proposal, which they feel did not protect jobs from cuts or privatization. Maureen O'Reilly, president of the Library Workers Union, said an agreement that doesn't provide adequate job security threatens about 70% of library staff. Over 100 library positions were cut in the 2012 budget. Workers rallied at City Hall on Monday to pressure the city to reach an agreement that provides job security, especially for part-time employees. A former chief of staff for Stephen Harper has suggested the robocall scandal was an intentional effort by the Conservative government. Ian Brody, chief of staff from 2006 to 2008, said the systematic calls that misled voters about polling stations was, quote, a national effort at subterfuge, end quote, that warrants a serious investigation. Elections Canada reports they have received over 700 complaints of robocalls in ridings across the country and have had over 31,000 contacts with Canadians about the calls since the story broke. Mark Maynard, Chief Electoral Officer for Elections Canada, is currently heading an investigation but warns of prematurely accusing the Conservatives of being responsible for the calls. The Auditor General is preparing a report that calls out the Conservative government for ignoring real costs associated with the F-35 fighter jets they were intent on buying in 2010. The report will acknowledge that while the government was busy convincing the public of the F-35's necessity, Lockheed Martin was seriously behind in production, causing increased costs to the project. Meanwhile, the government is currently wavering in their commitment to the project, now saying it will be reviewed again before they decided whether to continue. A gunman entered a Jewish school in the French city of Toulouse on Monday, killing a rabbi and three children. This incident has been linked to the killing of three soldiers in the same part of France last week, which investigators now believe was racially motivated. After it emerged that the killer filmed the school shooting spree, many believe the country is facing a racist, anti-Semitic, and possibly military-trained serial killer. The government raised the terror alert in the country, and all campaigns for the presidential election have been temporarily suspended. A U.S. soldier in Afghanistan is being accused of massacring 16 Afghan civilians, including children, in a shooting spree over the weekend. The soldier is currently in custody, but no charges have been laid. 
Hundreds protested in eastern Afghanistan near the site of the shootings, a few days after the incident calling for an end to the NATO occupation of their country. Shortly after the massacre, President Obama said he remains committed to their mission and their plans to gradually transition out of the country. Not willing to recognize that a U.S. soldier is responsible for the shootings, he said, quote, I am confident we can put Afghans in a position where they can deal with their own security. The U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement took effect last week amidst widespread criticism. Over 1,000 Koreans protested in Seoul the day the legislation became official, arguing it will crush the local economy and underwrite the value of local labor, while also calling for the president's resignation. This legislation was rushed through before the April elections, where major opposition parties held critical support for promising to halt the agreement. The Public Citizens Global Trade Watch argues this pact will damage the livelihoods of the 99% in both Korea and the United States. As the demand for free universal education in Chile grows, so too does police repression. Police responded to the first student protest of the year with tear gas, water cannons, and heavy force. Students are demanding free, high-quality public education for all and the reinstatement of students excluded from school for protesting. A privatization of the school system under Pinochet has left the country with a two-tier system that only offers quality education to those who can afford it a system students say neglects the state responsibility to ensure quality education is available to everyone. Amnesty International has called on the Chilean president to address the ongoing police violence and human rights abuses in the country. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 22, 2012. The 2012 Water Forum Shared Water, Shared Legacy reminds us that Toronto is part of the Great Lakes community and there's an increasing need to protect our shared water commons from pollution, exploitation and privatization. The Water Forum will take place March 24th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Steelworkers Hall at 25 Cecil Street in Toronto. Topics will include attack on our aquifers, a First Nations perspective, women's roles and responsibilities to life and water, and water as a human right, among others. Cost is $10 or pay what you can. Lunch will be provided. Please RSVP to torontochapter at gmail.com. Those in Toronto are invited to the fourth in a series of public forums on economic inequality. What do we do? Building on the discussions at the first three meetings, this forum will aim to help create an agenda with broad public appeal. Speakers will include Jim Stanford, economist with the Canadian Auto Workers and columnist for the Globe and Mail, and John Ralston Saul, president of PEN International and author of many books, including A Fair Country, Telling Truths About Canada. The forum will take place March 26th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Metropolitan United Church at the corner of Queen and Church in Toronto. The event is wheelchair accessible and free, although donations are welcome. It will be a large meeting and rally, so bring your friends. At the end of March in Ottawa, attend the Fair Tax Summit, Building a Better Canada, organized by Canadians for Tax Fairness. The conference will take place March 29th to 30th at the Lord Elgin Hotel in Ottawa. Activists, researchers, students, journalists, and elected officials are invited to discuss how to build a movement for progressive taxation in order to protect social programs and build a more equal society. Information on workshops and how to register can be found at taxfairness.ca. 
On Saturday, April 7th in Winnipeg, the Canada-Palestine Support Network presents Dance Down the Wall 7, an event to help raise funds for humanitarian aid and relief efforts in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere in Palestine. Dance Down the Wall will take place from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. at Low Pub, 330 Kennedy Street, and will feature music by DJ Co-op, Clash and Cooks, and others. Admission is $10. For more information, search for the event page on Facebook or email canpalnetwinnipeg at yahoo.ca. That's all for Around the Left for this week. A recent report was released by climate scientists Andrew Weaver and Neil Stewart. The media announced that this research has pretty well exonerated the Alberta tar sands as a significant contributor to global warming. It's coal and natural gas that are the real climate change bad guys, that according to a Globe and Mail headline. We've reached Keith Stewart. He is with the Greenpeace Climate Change Campaign. Uh, he's been working on climate and energy issues for over a decade and represents Greenpeace in a variety of public and policy fora, as well as being a frequent media commentator on issues related to energy efficiency, renewable energy, and climate policy. So welcome to Alert, Keith. Thanks for having me on. Okay, first off, Keith, um, could you maybe tell us what precisely does this new report actually say? Well, so this is the kind of thing where it's an interesting research question, um, and I don't think they quite thought about how the media spin would come out. Because what they did is they compared the amount of carbon that's in the Alberta tar sands to all of the coal in the world and all of the natural gas in the world. And when you do that kind of a comparison, the tar sands are not as big a problem as all the coal in the world. If you burn all the coal in the world, they estimated that it warm global temperatures by about 15 degrees Celsius. Um, <clears throat> That, of course, is huge. And scientists say we have to avoid having warming going over two degrees. So, uh, you know, and they said when you look at the tar sands, it's about 0.36 degrees. Um, but that's just from one carbon source in the world. And what I think most media picked up, what they looked at is they said, oh, coal much bigger. So clearly the real problem is coal. Well, the article was pretty clear that our challenge is that we're actually exploiting coal at ever faster rates and natural gas and conventional oil, which we're running out of, and increasingly moving to this unconventional oil, like the tar sands. And when you add all those up, it's, it's dangerous. And the study actually points out that the tar sands alone, even if you only do the commercially, the stuff that's commercially exploitable right now at current prices, current technology, which is about 10% of all the oil that's buried in the tar sands, that would take up 75% of the carbon budget for all of North America over the next 50 years. Um, and if you add in the extra energy required to actually boil the tar sands out of the ground, it takes up 87% of the carbon budget. And it's kind of like if someone came to you and said that, you know, they're going to, well, they want you to buy this house, and it's going to take 87% of your income to pay the mortgage and the utilities, you'd probably say, I can't afford that house. And I mean, the, the article was, you know, clearly saying we can't afford to continue down this road. And the actual conclusion was we need to stop investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure and start investing in energy efficiency and renewables. And that's the, the bit that, of course, didn't get me, didn't get picked up by the media because it wasn't quite as interesting as the headline of, you know, Cole, the real villain. Mm -hmm. So in that case, is there a, a particular reason why the media has chosen to respond to this report the way they did? Well, I think, <clears throat> I think there's two things that were at play here. One, 
um, it provides a real easy hook. It's, you know, you compare oil sands to, or tar sands to coal, and coal is worse. Um, so it's a very easy story to tell, and media likes easy stories. Um, and I also think a lot of the people who are commenting on it, you know, hadn't read it, because first of all, you had to pay $18 to get it or, be, or have a subscription to Nature magazine. Um, <clears throat> so they were kind of going off of the summary and the abstract rather than actually reading the study itself. And I think, you know, Professor Weaver, who's one of the most prominent climate scientists in Canada, you know, he's come out afterwards and said, you know, no, this isn't saying, you know, he actually said, you know, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for the tar sands. We need to move away from the tar sands, just like we need to move away from coal and everything else. He said, for instance, you know, he's adamantly opposed to building the Northern Gateway Pipeline through BC because it would entrench this kind of a <clears throat> addiction to fossil fuel energy. Um, so when you look at the actual substance of what he was saying, it was, you know, quite what we'd expect you from a climate scientist. Um, however, I think both he and his co-author were, uh, you know, they're not you know, media spin experts. They probably, they thought, oh, this is an interesting research question. How much carbon is in the tar sand versus in coal? Um, and it is kind of an interesting academic research question. However, it really got picked up by tar sands proponents as saying, oh, see, we're not the problem. I was actually on a panel today at Ryerson University in Toronto with um Don Thompson from the Canadian Oil Sands Limited and, you know, the pro-oil sands slideshow that he goes around the country given now has that chart from Weaver in it saying, oh, look, tar sands are not the big villain globally. And, you know, globally, coal is the big villain. But in Canada, the fastest rising source of greenhouse gas emissions is the tar sands. Um, what's the biggest political barrier in this country to change? It's the oil industry and their desire to be able to triple and ultimately quintuple production from the tar sands. Mm. Um, and so that's why, you know, when we're looking at what's our problem in Canada, we really have to deal with the tar sands. In other countries, it is coal. And in Canada, you know, we actually are, coal is still a problem here, but Ontario is phasing out its coal plants. Uh, Nova Scotia is actually taking some action on coal. Pretty much everywhere that has coal plants other than Alberta is actually taking measures to start weaning themselves off of coal. It does seem as if both Canadian media and defenders of the tar sands, like Enbridge, they have a, a link to this study on their site, and uh, they, they seem to be putting that particular spin on it. But what about outside of Canada? In, uh, in Europe, for example, where the tar sands have really gotten a, a black eye, uh, do you have any sense of the way the media is covering this uh, issue? It wasn't a real big story outside of Canada. I mean, this was really kind of like a tempest in a teapot in Canada. But we know that, I mean, the Canadian government and the oil industry has a fierce lobby in Europe right now to try and uh, undermine and eliminate uh, climate legislation there called the Fuel Quality Directive, uh, which would actually put a default value on carbon emissions from the tar sands, which means that it would be very difficult to import it into Europe because they're actually trying to, they've actually imposed reductions, required reductions and carbon intensity of their transportation fuels, which you know, sideswipes the tar sands because they are much higher carbon than other forms of transportation fuel. Um, <clears throat> so we know that you know, they'll undoubtedly be rolling that out as part of their communication strategy in Europe. Um, but we actually have folks over there right now doing a tour. Um, uh, so Hannah McKinnon from the Climate Action Network and Chief Bill Erasmus from the Dene Nation uh, going around and talking to the politicians about why they need to stand firm against the oil lobby and the Canadian, lobby, Canadian government lobby on pro-tar sands and sort of 
countering some of this kind of spin that we expect to see coming out of our government. Mm-hmm. So uh, are we looking at a, a kind of a tempest in a teapot uh, situation? Is Are people going to just eventually, is this issue going to fade or do you see any uh, lingering impacts? Well, I expect to see it appear in every presentation by Tarsan's proponents for the next few years. Um, there was actually you know, a really good response from Mark Jacquard, who's one of the prime climate policy analysts in Canada. He published an op-ed in the, the in the Vancouver paper, where you know, he was kind of he was saying, you know, look, we've no one, anyone who tells you we can expand the tar sands and still meet, you know, the, the climate targets that the Harper government has committed to, is lying to you. Anyone who tells you you can do those two things is simply lying, um, and that's the uncomfortable truth that our governments and industry don't want to acknowledge. It's that they say, oh, you know, this, the tar sands on their own won't send the climate spinning out of control. Well, the tar sands are the most carbon-intensive, but also the most expensive oil on the planet. If we sort of go down a path where the glo- there's actually demand for that oil in the world, then uh, the planet really is cooked. And I think one of the things that you know, even people who aren't perhaps as concerned about climate change should be worried about is if Canada puts its entire economic future in that tar sands basket in the way. Prime Minister Harper does. He he talks about Canada as an emerging energy superpower based in the tar sands. Um, If the world does take action on climate change, and many parts of the world are, then we're going to end up trying to push dirty oil out into a market that's moved on to greener forms of energy. And we're going to be, you know, it'll be like like investing in typewriters um, in 1980. Uh, It would be a big mistake in terms of going, trying to look at where the economy is actually going and where the durable jobs are going to be. Mm. Well, Keith Stewart, we really thank you for uh, helping to dissect that uh, bit of uh, public relations spin, uh, and uh, we welcome your analysis. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Alert. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Greenpeace climate change campaigner Keith Stewart. The New Democratic Party will be choosing its new leader this weekend. Alert has contacted three longtime observers and political activists to get their take on what direction the leading contenders would most likely take the party if they were elected leader. We start with Judy Rebick. Judy has just published an ebook with Penguin called Occupy This. So, Judy Rebick, thanks for joining us. Sure. Could you uh, give us a uh, uh, a sense of where you see, who you see the main contenders to be and uh, where you see uh, each of them taking the party should they be uh, chosen well i think the main contenders right now are um thomas mulcair brian top peggy nash um i don't know about paul Dewar. i don't get a sense that he's got a lot of support although he's been considered a front runner by some and i think nathan cullen is kind of the uh, surprise uh, candidate in terms of the support he's getting. I think he's getting quite a bit of support, and maybe, maybe, may, and could be a lot of people's second choice. So, uh, so I think that those, the four I'd put on the top of the the four, not including Paul Dewar, I think he's lost a lot of support over time. Okay, so uh, well, we could start with uh, Thomas Mulcair. Where would he uh, be taking the party? 
Well, I, I'm, I guess I'm most concerned about him. Um, I think he's basically a Blairite. You know, I think he embraces a neoliberal politic, which is, um, you know, I, which, of course, I totally disagree with, but also I think is rather catastrophic for the NDP. I think he'll present the least of an alternative to Harper. Um, also, I worry about his approach to democracy. He's very um, authoritarian in the way in the way he has dealt with difference in the past, and he is in, in some ways a lot like Harper in his method of, in what I think his method of leadership would be. Like we can see it, uh, he sees himself as a front runner, so he stops talking to anybody who's going to challenge him. Uh, like he wouldn't give an interview to the current, he wouldn't give an in, he wouldn't participate in rabbles. Um, uh, chat with the uh, leadership candidates, so he he's he's he, he's sort of a consummate politician, and uh, and he's sort of a, and he's quite nasty from all accounts. I don't I've never met the guy, but um, I think he'd I think he would be really catastrophic for anybody who wants to see progressive politics in this country, and I think even electorally he wouldn't be very good because you know everybody says he's uh, he's popular in Quebec, but actually he's not very popular in Quebec. Uh, from everything I can see, I'm living in Quebec right now, and uh, people know his name, and so he's more popular than the other candidates. But I think once they got to know other people, it wouldn't make that big a difference in Quebec. And I think in the rest of the country, he doesn't really present much of an alternative to the Liberals, and even to Harper, that much of an alternative. So I, I think he'd be electorally a mistake as well. Mm. Now, what about the other three that you mentioned, yeah. uh, Top and uh, Cullen and Nash? Well, um, I'll start with Peggy Nash. I think Peggy's run a really good campaign. I think she um, is very strong in lots of uh, in lots of her uh, in, in her leadership. I mean, I think she's a pretty classical uh, center-left social democrat kind of like. I think she's actually got the closest politics to Jack Layton's politics, um, and I think she'd be fine as a leader. But I, I my problem with Peggy is that you know she's not. Um, She's not very representative of a, of, a, of, of a new kind of politics that I want to see. Um, I think she's good and solid on the issues, but I think she's not really challenging the party very much, nor would she. Uh, and I think uh, the same is true for Brian Topp. I think he's not, his politics probably aren't as good as hers, but he's very strong on strategy, and I think he's um, you know, he certainly convinced me that he rejects Blairism completely and thinks it almost destroys social democracy. So I think that they have similar politics, but Peggy's proven in the political arena, and Top isn't. I think Top could be the Ignatieff of the NDP. That is, he has no uh, no pu- no uh, history of public performance, and you know, being a leader of a party is a performance art, and uh, we don't have any idea whether he would be able to connect with people or not. And so I think he's a big, the biggest risk, actually, uh, in terms of popularity. And then Cullen is, uh, is in a way, the most interesting person, because um, even though he's been defined as right, I don't really know where he stands on the right-left spectrum. I think that he's challenging the party. I think he's very appealing as a, can- as a, as a, as a personality, very appealing, funny, thoughtful, um, and I think probably, you know, most of the young people I know are supporting him. Uh, uh, you know, his, and his, you know, his idea of an electoral alliance, I'm not, you know, I've never supported strategic voting because I didn't think it would work. And I think uh, an electoral alliance, if it could 
be agreed to, which I doubt it ever would, could actually, in conservative writing, could actually work to defeat Harper without really that much of a compromise. But, you know, the liberals and the, and the NDP, they hate each other so much, I just doubt it would ever happen. But I don't, I don't really object to it particularly. And I'm not, I'm not that clear on what his other policies are, which is mainly part of the problem with him. So any quick thoughts about who, like from a strict, pragmatic, electoral perspective, would be the best choice? Um, I would say, uh, well, the problem with Nathan Cullen is he doesn't speak French very well. So in the next election, it would be highly problematic in Quebec. I think he could get up his French. You know, I've listened to him in French, and he's, he's got a rudimentary French. But, you know, Har- Har- Stephen Harper didn't speak French very well when he started either. Um, so that's his electoral, I think that's his biggest electoral problem. I think in the rest of the country, he's quite appealing. Um, I think Peggy's got excellent French. So I don't know, you know, I, 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 it's really, I, I mean, one of the reasons I haven't come out really in favor of anybody is because nobody stands out to me as either uh, stronger, you know, that much stronger on the issues. Um, and for me, democracy is really central to that because, you know, I mean, I've argued for a long time that deepening democracy is central to progressive politics. And I think Cullen is doing that. Is, that's, he's strongest in that area. Uh, but he's weak in Quebec, and I think it's really critical to have uh, continue the, uh, uh, to speak to Quebec in a way that I doubt very much that he could. So I'm, I'm, I'm iffy. The only thing I'm clear about is uh, Thomas Mulcair would be a disaster politically, and I think electorally. Because I think the Tories will out him as a kind of nasty guy that he is. And, uh, you know, they're into negative ads, and there's lots negative about him. Okay, so Judy. I think, I, I, yeah, I, I think people are overestimating his electoral appeal. Okay. Judy Rebeck, uh, we really appreciate those insights. Uh, thank you for sharing this. Sure. With us. Okay. Bye-bye. Alert has been speaking with Judy Rebeck, and she is... Um, a longtime observer and political activist, and has recently published an ebook with Penguin called Occupy This. For his thoughts on the New Democratic Party leadership race, the contenders, and the direction they would likely take the party, is Murray Cook. He teaches in the Department of Political Science and the School of Public Policy and Administration at York University. Thank you for joining us, Murray. Good to be here. Okay, could you first of all, uh, who do you see as being the uh, leading contenders in this race? Uh, well, I mean, the leading contenders, um, you know, are the the ones that have been widely noted in the in the media. I think, you know, clearly uh, Mulcair is is leading the way, and uh, the rest of the uh, well, I don't know if they're the front pack or the, they're now the, se- the second pack behind Mulcair. Um, would be Top and Cullen and, and Nash. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't really think Dewar fits in there, but he's, he's uh, occasionally included. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe we should uh, start with uh, Thomas Mulcair. Uh, what, what direction do you see him taking the party? Well, um, you know, to a certain extent, I, I think it's useful to just even um, to, to think a bit about or, or, or just be clear about the, the direction of the party under, under Leighton. Right? I think uh, uh, we need to recognize the extent to which he, uh, you know, the, the party under Leighton shifted uh, towards, the, towards the center of the political spectrum. Right? Um, 
he, you know, he, he originally won the leadership um, and was sort of perceived as uh, representing a shift to the left. But it was, you know, it was much more ambiguous than that, even, even back in 2003. And, uh, you know, I, I think, well, it's kind of like, you know, only, only Nixon could go to China. Only, only someone with Leighton's credibility sort of on the left of the party could shift the party to shift the NDP so solidly sort of to, to the center of the political spectrum, right? And, and so I think over, you know, the, uh, the years that Leighton was the leader, the, the, the party shifted to the right and, and the, the, the platform um, in, in, in 2011, which, uh, you know, of course, is when the NDP experienced its uh, dramatic breakthrough, which was probably their most moderate uh, uh, platform ever, right? Mm-hmm. So... You know, sort of the, the direction of the party already, uh, you know, has been over the past few years. Could you just give us a couple of examples of that that sort of centrist uh, or right uh, direction that you're referring to? Right, right. And I, I, and I do partially raise it because, of course, Brian Topp was there through, through much of this, right? So I'll, I'll come back to Brian Topp specifically, I guess, when we get to him. But, uh, you know, I guess just to focus specifically on that, that platform in, in 2011, um, you know, I mean, they, the, the NDP committed to keeping uh, Canada's corporate uh, tax rate uh, essentially below uh, comparable uh, rates in the U.S. And, uh, you know, a central, a central focus of that was actually uh, tax cuts and tax credits for small business. But, you know, we were kind of left with, Okay, so the Conservatives want tax cuts for big business. The NDP wants tax cuts for small business, right? And, and, and even the language was similar. Um, the NDP described tax cuts for small business as, as uh, rewarding job creators, right? And that, that's very similar to the, to the language of the, of, of the right, right? And, you know, as, as I said, you know, there, there was something particular about Leighton um, that allowed this to happen um, with, without a whole lot of, you know, sort of controversy within the party, right? And, and it seemed to me that, you know, if, if Alexa McDonough had done this, right, had, had moved the party so, so clearly and so solidly to the center, um, I mean, you would have had uh, resistance or you, you would have had, uh, well, you would have had a fight uh, within the party, right? And, and uh, Leighton was able to, um, uh, well, you know, I, I've described it as, you know, sort of co-opting the left, right? And, and, Okay. Oh, it was also a question. I mean, they were actually, you know, he was bringing the, the party back in terms of seats, and uh, so people were just thankful for that. So basically, Thomas Mulcair is sort of like a, a natural consequence of that uh, trajectory that you refer to. What, what about those, some of the other candidates then, uh, Peggy Nash, uh, Brian Topp, uh, right. Nathan right. Cullen? Well, you, you know, even just to, to finish uh, or give uh, Mulcair another few seconds, I mean, I, I think... You're right. I mean, it, it's it's just sort of continuing the trajectory uh, of what's already there, right? And sort of continuing to pull the the NDP towards towards the center, right? Um, and uh, well, I mean, at least you can say he's honest about it. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, on on the one hand, he he uh, Mulcair has has uh, you know he's sort of tried to be a classic front runner and uh, not stick his neck out and actually say too much. He hasn't really defined a whole lot of what he, he stands for, but. He, He's said enough to make it pretty clear that you know he's kind of pushing the party uh, further to the right. So you know if you were to win, he would you know, kind of you're, then you would have a candidate, uh, a new leader with with a mandate to push the party to the right. Mm-hmm. But um, at the same time, 
he's, he's raised the warning bells for a lot of people within the party to, that, uh, you know, he, he, he would face some internal opposition. So that, that's interesting and I think notable, and, and um, that we'd have to wait and see what happened. Um, but yeah, you know, I've already mentioned or alluded to uh, Brian Topp, right? Um, you know, I mean, he, he <laughs> uh, I mean, it's been a very interesting uh, candidacy, right? Uh, I mean, he sort of emerges as apparently the, the chosen one from the, uh, you know, I guess from the latent crowd or from the, the you know, I almost hesitate to say the elites of the party, but I guess that's what it is. Um, you know, he, he's uh, been very strategic in trying to present himself as somewhat to the left, at least to the left of Mulcair, right? But his background, right, I mean, he, he, he through the 90s, he worked for um, Saskatchewan Premier Roy Romano. Uh, through Leighton's leadership, uh, I mean, you know, he's, he, he was Leighton's, uh, you know, right-hand man, and and he co-wrote that very moderate uh, 2011 election platform, right? So there, there's a certain, to me, inconsistency between his positioning now, of being very critical of, of Mulcair, um, and you know, trying to say, oh, he's a traditional sort of social democrat, and and you know what he's been doing for the past 20 years within the NDP of, of, you know, sort of pushing the party to the, towards the center of the political spectrum or, or being allied with, well, you know, as I say, Roy Romano, who's a very uh, pragmatic, uh, centrist. And what about Nash and Cullen? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mean, Peggy Nash uh, clearly has, you know, I mean, she, she's positioned as, uh, she is positioned as the left candidate, um, you know, I mean, these are fairly small uh, degrees of, of separation here, but, you know, so she's just a little bit to the left of the rest of the pack, I'd say. Um, but, uh, well, you know, in part, she, she, it's significant, you know, she emerges from, or, you know, historically, <laughs> at least from the, from the labor movement, right? So in that sense, she's, she's emerging out of movement politics, and um, I suppose you could say there's certain similarities with Leighton, although Leighton's more from social movements, but Leighton, whereas uh, Nash comes from, um, an activist background in, in the labor movement and, and is associated or respected in the women's movement. Um, you know, I, I think, I, to me, I think she's well-placed. You know, if there is a sort of, well, I mean, obviously there already is, but I think she's well-placed to be sort of the, the anyone but Mulcair uh, candidate uh, in that I don't see her as being particularly offensive to anyone. Um, and she does, you know, she's well-respected. Um, you know, she has a moderately social democratic platform, really, all things considered. Uh, she speaks French. She has a seat in Parliament, right? So she's, she doesn't have some of the weaknesses that some other people have. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, it seems to me, though, she hasn't necessarily uh, wowed anyone in this uh, campaign. You know, she hasn't knocked anybody's socks off. Um, for better or for worse, she hasn't really been at the center of, of attention, but so, so maybe that facilitates her being a second choice, right? She hasn't, she hasn't had negative attention, but not, you know, has she had enough positive attention? Has she mm-hmm. um, performed well enough? Uh, it's hard to say. I, but, but I still think she's probably the best positioned. If you know, if someone is going to knock off uh, or, or uh, yeah, knock off Mulcair, um, she might might be the one. Okay. Um, and yeah, you know, she does have some credibility as someone you know comes from. Uh, more of a left background and, and an activist background. So that, that's well, Murray, and it has, you know, it has the, 
uh, credibility on, on uh, sort of economic issues, right? And she, she is one that has pushed economic issues, and she does credit for that. Marie, I think we probably have to leave it there, but uh, we very much appreciate uh, those perspectives on the uh, NDP leadership race, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see uh, how things unravel. Thank you for sharing your analysis with us. You're welcome. Okay. You're welcome. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Murray Cook, who teaches in the Department of Political Science in the School of Public Policy and Administration at York University. For his thoughts on the NDP leadership race, we are now joined by Dennis Helon. Dennis uh, is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective, and he also teaches political science at York University. So, Dennis Pilon, who do you see as the leading contenders in the NDP leadership race currently? It's been very hard to get a sense of where the race is at. Obviously, the mainstream media, with their penchant for horse races, have been trying to come up with leaders. But the problem is we just don't have reliable information about um, you know, who might be leading? Uh, I think the sense is that Mulcair is a leader. Uh, you know, the top is in the race. Uh, the, we, hear, we hear Peggy Nash is still competitive, and some have been mentioning uh, Nathan Cullen. Okay. Now, uh, let's. Uh, the, 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 the name you mentioned first, uh, Thomas Mulcair, uh, his uh, name has come up pretty prominently uh, in the media for a certain. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a, a recent statement from none other than Ed Broadbent, uh, an elder statesman of the party, uh, very critical of uh, Thomas Mulcair uh, as a choice to lead the party. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, you know, if I, I had predicted that Mulcair wouldn't have a ghost of a chance because the New Democrats are a very club-like group and they don't take kindly to outsiders. Uh, now, it's awfully nice if somebody comes in and wants to join the team, but it's another if they want to move to become the leader. And other attempts to do this uh, in the party in the past have, have not worked out. So I, I was really surprised. I mean, Mulcair's got so much baggage. He's a former uh, liberal provincial leader, which means he's a, he, or not a leader, but member of the, the liberal party, the governing party. And, of course, that's the right-wing party in Quebec. So, very surprising. I mean, I understand the pragmatism that involved uh, Layton's negotiations to get him to come to the party. They needed a beachhead in Quebec. But it's another to turn the party over to him as the leader. Uh, so, you know, I was really surprised to see uh, some of the support and some of the uh, uh, predictions that he was going to take the leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, what what would you... What is your sense uh, the, of the direction Thomas Mulcair would take the party, should he become leader? Well, I would disagree with those who would suggest that he is a departure from other trends in the party, because uh, in many ways the mix of policy that he's proposing is hardly distinguishable from Lorne Nystrom's bid for the leadership a few years ago, uh, and, and not that different from a lot of what the Saskatchewan NDP is represented, the Saskatchewan and Manitoba NDP, representing the kind of right wing of the party, if you will, uh, you know, the most kind of mainstream, pragmatic, governing part of, of the New Democrats, not surprisingly, because they've been able to govern um, in those provinces much more than other branches of the party. So, I, you know, Mulcair seems to fit, uh, I think, pretty, pretty neatly with that bunch. Uh, needless to say, I don't think that, w that is what the party needs in terms of its policy mix.
Mm-hmm. Well, what about uh, Mr. Mulcair's main rivals for the NDP crown? Well, I'm sad to say that I found this leadership campaign a bit dispiriting. Um, in the past, I've always felt there was at least somebody <laughs> that I could say, okay, that person seems to be offering something that I think the party could use, or that person is, is a mix of things. I mean, even Leighton, I felt, uh, managed to straddle a number of different con- important constituencies in the party, you know, all the criticisms of his leadership notwithstanding. Uh, Leighton would at least come out and say he was a socialist uh, at different points. Um, whereas Top, you know, he's, he's very much a Blairite uh, modernizer, you know, so him and Mulcair are really not that different, except that Mulcair, you know, doesn't even come out of the tradition of social democracy. Uh, and then Cullen's specific policy comments, uh, you know, haven't really impressed me as being, um, uh, you know, that broad either. And his suggestion that the party should stand down in favor of liberal candidacies, I think, is really quite mistaken. Uh, so that leaves, I think, as far as the potential, Peggy Nash. Um, I think Nash, uh, you know, has the French skills that the party needs to maintain this new base in Quebec. She's got the links to organized labor, which is an historic community uh, for, for the party. She'd be the first labor leader, leader to lead the party. Um, but I think others, and myself too, have been a bit underwhelmed by her performance so far. Mm. Well, uh, putting aside uh, whatever personal reservations you might have, who would you say would be the, the best equipped to, uh, to, from a strictly practical perspective, to, to gain seats going into the next election? Well, I can see why a lot of people are taking a very long, hard look at Mulcair. Um, the party has spent practically its entire career trying to get into Quebec, uh, and for all sorts of reasons, they have failed. So... Mulcair looks very safe. Um, he's French. Um, he's got a record of winning. Um, he's got the, the political uh, uh, profile in Quebec. Um, he's, he's fairly broad in the coalition that might stand behind him. Uh, so I think if the party is serious about hanging on to its second party status, I'm not surprised to see them looking very seriously at Mulcair. Whether or not simply being... Uh, from Quebec, in, as in the case for Top, or being fluent in French, as in the case for Nash, would be enough? I don't know. I mean, I, my reservations about Top is, you know, this is a backroom guy, but he's never been elected to anything. And retail politics is a lot harder than it looks. I mean, even Jack Layton, who had a lot of experience in retail politics, took a number of years as leader to kind of warm up to the role and really figure out how to pitch himself. So, again, I'm, I'm not surprised that there's a lot of people taking a second look at Mulcair, both inside Quebec and outside Quebec, and this will be largely one outside of Quebec because of where the membership is, um, that, that people would see him as the one most likely to keep the party at least in second place. Now, uh, I just wanted to ask you one more quick question, if I could. Uh, there was a recent article in Rabble by Murray Dobbin, which came out very complimentary of uh, Mr. Cullen, Nathan Cullen's approach, which you seem to have been critical of. Uh, would you like to respond to it? Well, I can't respond to it because I'm not familiar with the piece. Okay. But Cullen, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about Cullen because I think he's a bright fellow, nice guy. Um, but this talk of some kind of coalition between the, the NDP and the Liberals is just fundamentally mistaken. And it, it, it raises questions in my mind about how well the different players understand where the parties fall. The federal Liberal Party 
It's not a left-wing party, and many of its voters would desert it to vote for the conservatives if such a thing came to pass. We really appreciate that uh, perspective, so thank you very much for well, sharing thanks, it with thanks Alert. thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Dennis Pilon. He's a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective and teaches political science at York University. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon. And on today's show, writers were brand new to me. They may not be new writers, but to me, I just found them. I just discovered them. And they're all wonderful, wonderful writers. One of the best things that happened in the last little while is Cheney canceling his Toronto visit. He was afraid of the left. Isn't it nice when somebody's actually afraid of the left? Well, here's somebody who is of the left and isn't afraid of anything. Here is Amy Martin with It's About Oil. Dick! Cheney is explaining why we need to invade Iraq. He says we gotta hit them, we gotta get them before they can get us back. I'm not even gonna bother to argue over that. Cause it's clearly just a bunch of BS. To distract us from the facts It's about oil It's about oil It's about greed It's about greed It's about rich white men getting richer It's about fear It's about fear And control And control Of those barrels of black gold Texas tea Yeah, step up folks to another war Where we never really say what we're fighting for It's easy to pretend we're defending our native soil Put it in the headlines I want to see it in big lies Hello, it's about oil George W, how I love you And your tough Texas cowboy way Congressional approval is for weenies You go to war whenever you please And if the citizens raise some questions just use the T-word and log on mode. And then it's back to business as usual Priming the pump It's about oil It's about, oil. It's about, greed. It's about greed It's about this rich country getting richer It's about fear, it's about fear. And, control and control Of those barrels of black gold yeah, step up, folks, to another war Where we never really say what we're fighting for It's easy to pretend we're defending our native soil Put it in the headlines, I want to see it in big lies Hello, it's about oil And we the people, we shrug inside Too bad about your country, but I like to drive If I bare my head and close my eyes Maybe the oil never will run out Yeah, we're living in a weird sort of heaven St. Peter is holding a gun All the angels are dressed in business suits The disciples are on the television And our Lord says, do unto others As you need to do to come out on top And after church we all go to Walmart The eleventh commandment, thou shalt shop it's about oil, it's about greed, 
It's about using way more than we need. It's about fear, it's about fear. And, control and control of those barrels of black gold. Yes, above folks to another war where we never really say what we're fighting for. It's easy to pretend we're defending our native soil. Put it in the headlines. I want to see it in big lines. Hello, it's about oil. Yeah, put it in the headlines. I want to see it in big lines. Hello, wake up. Greetings, earthlings. It's about oil. On the mountain and a message in the sky. 
It's a message in the forest and a message in the heavens. If we don't stop what we're doing, if we don't stop what we're doing, if we don't stop what we're doing, the earth, the earth will surely die. Look at the speed that the sand is flowing. Who can stop it slipping through the hourglass? We got the knowledge, we got the power, we got the freedom, but we gotta move fast. We got the freedom to lie out in the sunshine. We got the freedom to breathe the mountain air. We got the freedom to feel the running water. We can take it all for granted until one day it isn't there. It's a message in the river. It's a message in the ocean. It's a message on the mountain and a message in the sky. It's a message in the forest and a message in the heavens. If we don't stop what we're doing, if we don't stop what we're doing, if we don't stop. What we're doing, the earth, the earth will surely die. Look at the way that the wind is blowing, rippling through the grass. Ripples turn to waves, and the waves have the power to turn the tide of madness and to save us from our past. We got the freedom to fight for what we stand for. We got the freedom to shout out that we care. We got the freedom to tell those with the power we don't like what they're doing to our earth and sea and air. It's a message in the river. It's a message in the ocean. It's a message on the mountain and a message in the sky. It's a message in the forest and a message in the heaven. Stop what we're doing. If we don't stop what we're doing, if we don't stop what we're doing, the earth will surely don't stop what we're doing. If we don't stop what we're doing, if we don't stop. Well, how's that for new songs and new writers? Pretty good stuff, I think. The last song was It's a Message, and the singer was Mandy Woods from Britain, and before that, Bombs Away by Radcliffe Bailey, and we started off with Amy Martin singing It's About Oil. Now we're going to hear another new writer for all of us, Ian Simpson with Lest We Forget. sound of 100 100 marching home Can you hear the march of 100 on their final journey home Can you hear the sound of 100 100 marching home Can you hear the march of 100 on their final journey home Remember shock and awe Shown on your TV Weapons of mass destruction 2003 
Remember the early victory We knocked the statue down Remember them wearing berets In that old Iraqi town Can you hear the sound of 100 100 marching home Can you hear the march of 100 On their final journey home Hear the sound of 100, 100 marching home. Can you hear the march of 100 on their final journey home? Remember hearing the protest of a million shuffling feet. Already knew the cost of moral defeat. Remember seeing the pictures They found him in a hole And stripped him of his dignity Was that a strategic goal? Lest we forget Lest we forget Lest we forget Our sons Lest we forget Lest we forget Lest we forget Our sons Remember the famous dossier Remember the tissue of lies Remember the resignation and the suicide Remember the roadside bombers Remember Abu Ghraib Remember six MPs in an angry crowd Lest we forget Lest we forget Lest we forget Our sons Lest we forget Lest we forget Lest we forget Our sons Can you hear the sound of 100 100 marching home Can you hear the march of 100 On their final journey home Can you hear the sound of 100 100 marching home Hear the march of 100 on their final journey home. On their final journey home. On their final journey home. Ian Simpson with Lest We Forget. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. That's it for this week, folks. Solidarity. That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. 
technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik, with technical production by Andrew Valpy. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.